Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. In these troubled and uncertain times, it seems that the only thing we can take comfort in sometimes is history. Civilizations, empires, and nations come and go. But how it happens and why is where we find lessons that may comfort us and maybe even save us. Few periods are as instructive as Pax Romana, Latin for Roman peace. It was the long period of relative peacefulness and minimal expansion of the Roman Empire after the end of the final war of the Roman Republic. This is the story that my guest Adrian Goldsworthy tells in his new book, Pax Romana. Adrian Goldsworthy has a doctorate from Oxford. He's a leading biographer and historian of the ancient world. He lectures widely and consults on historical documentaries. And it is my pleasure to welcome him here to the program to talk about Pax Romana, War, Peace, and Conquest in the Roman World. Adrian, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Great to have you here. Talk a little bit about the context of this period of time. What came before and why it became such a period of relative peace? Well, the Romans didn't set out to be the great peacemakers of the world. They were quite openly and blatantly aggressive imperialists. And they they conquered an empire because they thought there was profit to be found through conquest, through slaves, through plunder and that it made them safer from enemies outside, they were better protected, and for glory. You know, people in the ancient world openly boasted about the glory they'd won. It wasn't considered a shameful thing. It was something that you paraded. So the Romans conquered an empire, and then by the first century BC, as the Republic was beginning to fall apart, as different ambitious politicians turned against each other and they fought civil wars, they also had this feeling that, well, we've got this empire. Maybe we ought to do something for it. Maybe we ought to try and make it more stable, look after the, the people who actually live in these provinces that we've, con- we've conquered. And that's when the Pax Romana starts to take shape. And its form is particularly there in the, the first and second centuries AD, under the rule of emperors from Caesar Augustus onwards. And they are concerned about stability in the provinces, rule of law in the provinces, um, trade, keeping the seas safe so that ships can sail, they're not preyed on by pirates, keeping the roads safe for travelers, for goods, for all of these things. And it's, it's that growing sense of, well, we've got this, so let's actually try and do some, some wider good. Let's try and let's make our rule of benefit to those we rule as well, and not simply just for our own gain. And yet underlying this was this long history of celebrating and appreciating military achievement. Oh, very much so. And even there were pacts, you know, from which we get peace. For the Romans, pacts came from Roman victory, from Roman might. They even had a verb to pacify, pacare. Julius Caesar pacified Gaul, modern-day France, which meant that he charged around for 10 years, conquered the place, killed a lot of people, enslaved a lot of others. Peace is never about a sort of equal relationship with outsiders who have rights like you. The Romans don't grant rights to any other nation in the world, any other state, any other people. You know, there's no concept of international law. It's all about the Romans and their advantage. So it, it, it is this strange. They continue to celebrate their strength, their glory, their military might, and they simply say, well, we are so strong that we are able to impose this peace on the world and that that's for everybody's good, but it relies on the fact that we've got the biggest army and the best army in the world. One of the things you point out is that that Augustus in particular had to condition the population to the idea that peace was an acceptable form of life. Yes, I mean, he boasted a lot of the peace he brought from civil war. 
you, know, you have to remember that in his lifetime and for a generation or so before, time and time again, Roman legion had fought Roman legion as men like Sulla and Marius and then Caesar and Pompey and Mark Antony, Brutus, Cassius, all of these fought for power. They were willing to kill for a political end or simply just for their own ambition. And Augustus ended that. He gave people stability. He, he showed them that if you lived in Italy, you weren't going to have an army marauding through, conscripting your sons, burning your farm down, confiscating your property to give as reward to their, to their soldiers. So he gave them that. That was the peace he celebrated. But at the same time, he kept on parading the fact that we're going out and we're conquering the Germans, we're conquering the peoples of the Danube. But he balanced it. He didn't want to go and fight a big war and invade Parthia, modern-day Iran, Iraq, that area. And instead, he negotiated with them. But he, he presented this as, we're strong, they're frightened of us, therefore they have to do what we say. So it was, he was still couching it in terms of Roman might, Roman glory, as you say, to make it palatable to people. And what it meant was that really, while there was peace, the appearance of peace was a little bit misleading. Yes, I mean, it's something that... They, you know, he boasted about and said, I have provided this peace, I have imposed this peace on the world, I've brought this peace. It, it's misleading, but what the, the peace is sort of gradually covering a wider and wider area. The wars move further and further away as the frontiers expand, and you end up, by the end of Augustus' life in AD 14, the army is pretty much spread thinly around the frontiers. Most of the rest of the empire, most of the internal provinces, rarely see a Roman soldier. They never see a Roman army. It's so that you've got security over an ever wider area, even though there is conflict on the fringes of the Roman world. Talk a little bit about what role there was, what, what uprisings there were at various points. You often get within one or two generations of the Romans arriving in an area, turning a, conquering a region, turning it into a province, you get a rebellion. And sometimes it's led by people who've actually never fought the Romans but allied with them when they arrived, saw them as a big, powerful friend to use against neighboring tribes, neighboring cities that were the, the people you really hated, the enemies of generations, the enemies of your fathers, your grandfathers, that you hated, whereas the Romans were just you know, mysterious foreigners. Sometimes it turns sour, and when you've done quite well out of the Romans arriving, you realize, hmm, actually, uh, it's restricting how much I can expand my own power. I turn against them. Or you get mistreated. There's the famous one of, of Boudicca in Britain, um, who is, her family had taken out a large loan to the Roman state. Her husband dies, bequeaths half his kingdom to the emperor Nero, and Nero's officials turn up wanting to collect in cash straight away. Um, she's beaten, her daughters are raped, and the anger from that spreads into a rage that burns London, a couple of other cities in southern Britain. Terribly violent, terribly cruel rebellion on both sides. You know, the Roman reprisals are savage, but so are the, the atrocities committed by the rebels, first of all. But the striking thing is that happens in AD 60, 17 years after the Romans have invaded Britain. For then, from then onwards till the early 5th century, when the Roman province of Britain finally ends, there are no more rebellions in lowland Britain at all. And it's, that's the pattern you get everywhere, even in Judea eventually, where the rebellious period continues a little bit longer. Eventually it stops, and then for centuries there is simply no armed resistance to Roman authority. Everyone accepts being Roman, and in later years when the empire collapses, nobody wants to be independent. They simply want to be part of the Roman Empire and have they might want an emperor who looks after their interests, who deals with their local problems, but they don't want to be Syrian or British or Gauls or anything like that. 
So it's quite unlike the independence movements that swept through Asia and Africa after the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And to a certain extent, given such a long period of peace, were there those that feared that a period of peace this long was going to create weakness? There is always that Roman sense. They have this quite sort of pessimistic view of the world, that their ancestors were, were braver, were more moral, were less corrupted by wealth and luxury and comfort and all of these things, and that somehow we're, just, we're not as good as they were, and that therefore if ever there's a crisis, we won't cope. There is that sense of, of security that many people feel that the empire is simply so big and has lasted so long that it cannot possibly fail. And that survives right the way through into the 5th century when it is, you know, falling to pieces all around them and people can't quite believe this is going to happen. And they do blame themselves. They see it very much in moral terms. You get a few people warning of this earlier on, saying, you know, we need to keep the army up to scratch. We need to sort of think more about our commitment to the state. But on the whole, most people are willing to just get on with their lives and don't worry too much about these wider things. Because even the decline takes generations takes such a long time that you can fool yourself that nothing bad's really happening while you're living through it. Talk a little bit about the moral concerns, particularly as things started to fall apart. There is always this sense that if you fail, it's because you don't deserve to succeed because your character, your, your morals, your courage, your virtue are inadequate. And then conversely, if you succeed, it's because you deserve to succeed. You are brave enough. You are clever enough. You are um, honorable enough. So whenever there's a problem, they tend to see it in moral terms rather than in terms of sort of practical factors. And there is that growing sense. It goes in several different ways. Some people simply see all society as corrupt. You know, people are lazy now. They're too fat. They're too pampered. They're not willing to fight. You get increasingly um, vitriolic laws being passed by later Roman emperors against people who deserted from the army or who avoided conscription in the first place, sort of draft-dodging thing even to the extent where people were cutting off their thumbs so they couldn't hold a sword and trying to avoid military service that way. And eventually in the late 4th century, they say, well, we'll take two people without thumbs um, instead of one recruit with them. Um, you know, so you're still not, not going to get out of it, whatever you do. Um, so there is that sense. You also, of course, have the religious um, concept where you'll find by the 3rd century, people are starting to say, well, the gods have abandoned us because we're doing badly. Is that because we've allowed Christians who reject all our traditional gods to live amongst us? And as they became more prominent, on the other hand, you have Christians saying that, well, it shows the corruption of the, and the, the poor morals of the pagans that the empire is doing badly. And if everybody acted like us, it would be fine again. So people see them in these different ways, depending on your stance. One of the things you talk about is how influential this was to other nations, to other empires, this period of peace. Well, it's such a long period of success over a, a huge, huge area. And remember, this is a time when nothing can travel faster than a, a man can ride a horse on land or a ship can sail on the sea. And yet they still have this empire hold it together from northern Britain out to the Euphrates for centuries. So that it's, it's very much a reminder of just how, how great a power can be for such a long time. Rome's the great success story, hence the fact you had in the beginning of the 20th century, you'd have a, a Kaiser in Germany, a Tsar in Russia, both rulers calling themselves Caesar. How you'd have the founding fathers before that trying to create a Roman Republic that wouldn't degenerate into monarchy and drawing very much upon those classical ideals. People adopting eagles as a symbol. Again, the Roman eagle becomes this, this profound image of power. 
But of course, there's always the warning that for all their great success, in the end, they fail. So people tend to look at current great powers, current empires, inevitably compare them to Rome, and then say, well, either that, you know, they're not quite up to the Roman model, or it doesn't matter, they're going to decline in the end, they're going to go, that everything will come to an end. So it's, it's sort of the benchmark, really, for a great power will always be the Romans. What was it that made it start to fall apart? It's internal political weakness that really rots the empire away from the, from the center. And you can see from the early 3rd century AD, right the way through to the collapse of the Western Empire 250 years later, they have civil war after civil war after civil wars. People fight to become emperor and then fight to stay emperor. And most emperors die violently, nearly all at the hands of other Romans. Most of the battles the, the Roman army fights are against other Romans. So the state rots away and the, the efficiency of the state starts to crumble. So it can't deal with problems in a way that it could much more easily earlier on. It's still got huge resources. It's still got a sophisticated military, but can't seem to direct them as well or as effectively as it could in earlier centuries. And you have to remember these civil wars are never about policy or ideology, purely about power. Who's going to be emperor? And there's, because they feel that they're, they're invulnerable, they're so big, they're so civilized, they're so prosperous, so advanced, that they can't fail. And there's no outside power that is strong enough to push the empire over. They just think they can do this and it'll be fine. You know, it'll all work out in the end. Eventually we'll find some really strong emperors and everything will recover. But it is internal weakness that then makes it vulnerable to attacks from barbarian groups outside, from the Persians in the east. But even then, they're so small in comparison to the might of the Roman Empire that it, they just nibble away and it very gradually dies. Had there been a common enemy, had there been more enemies to fight, might it not have decayed from the inside the way it did? Perhaps. I mean, back in the Republic, people were blaming the destruction of Carthage, Rome's great rival that had produced, obviously, the famous general Hannibal, who took his elephants across the Alps. Rome destroys Carthage, levels it in 146 BC. And very soon afterwards, people start saying, well, the reason the Republic starts to, its, its politics decay, they become violent, we end up with rioting, with assassination, with civil war. It's because there isn't a fear of anyone outside. There isn't a rival that can sort of keep us on our toes. You know, we've got to be strong, we've got to stick together because there's this threat from outside. It could be, but again, it, you have to remember how long this all takes. And um, you sometimes wonder, well, if there had been an ex a, a big rival power that was close enough to threaten them, then perhaps the collapse would have come more quickly. But again, the Romans really, they, they offer civilization, they offer prosperity at levels unmatched by any other society in the ancient world there isn't really a, a, an attractive alternative. Even at the very end, the barbarian groups that come in are trying to get a piece of the action for themselves. They're trying to be Roman emperors just on a small scale. They want to live the life of comfort, the life of prosperity that the empire has brought. But the empire could only bring that when it was strong, when it was stable, when it allowed trade to flourish, and you know, it was simply more prosperous. And it, so it it all decays, even though no one really wants to destroy it. Everyone would like it still to be there. They'd just like to be in control. Um, so it, it's a very strange sort of situation. It, it gradually just wastes away. What, in your view, are, are the contemporary lessons that we can take away from all of this? Well, it's obviously the world is very different now to the Roman era. We don't celebrate military glory in the same way the Romans would. We don't, you know, we wouldn't accept something like slavery in the way that the Romans quite complacently do. Um, you know, there are also practices of, of how the Romans exercised power, how 
they maintained their strength that you know wouldn't look good on 24-hour news cycle if you were shown <laughs> burning down villages and this sort of thing <laughs> and executing people. Um, but there are some lessons as to how the Romans interacted, how they why they were so good at foreign policy, why they were so good at making their power more effective than anyone else's. And some of it's through sheer strength, through sophisticated um, military techniques and organization, but it's also consistency. The Romans knew that you have to sort of work on the principle that if you're just going to intervene somewhere and go away, then why should anybody deal with you? You know, you're not going to be there in a 10 years' time, 20 years' time. So the Romans, when they arrived, they were there to stay. And in the end, people had to work out, well, either I've got to keep fighting them until I'm, I'm beaten or I beat them, and probably they're going to beat me, or I might as well do a deal with them. I might as well accept they're there, so it's better to be their friend than their enemy. The other thing that I think is relevant that perhaps is a lesson that was learned rather too late in Iraq and Afghanistan is lots of people out there, most people are concerned with their own local politics, their own local ambitions. They're not pro or anti-Roman any more than these days they're pro or anti-American, pro or anti-Western. There are a few who are definitely in one of those categories, but most are somewhere in between. And they tend to be looking quite reasonably for their own advantage, their own ambitions. So it means that you have to be prepared to accept that someone who's been on your side one year might change in a few years' time because it suits them, and vice versa. You've got to be a lot more flexible. You've got to try and look at this from the other person's point of view. It's something that's a lesson the Romans only learned very slowly, but they did learn, and they became very good at using, working with other people, trying to understand, well, that's what they want, so let's see if we can have a compromise, something that suits both of us. We tend to often assume we want everything to happen quickly because, again, we've got a nice 24-hour news cycle, but also we sort of assume that everyone thinks like us and has the same likes and dislikes as us, whereas they're not. They're, they're people with, with free will of their own. They're going to do their own thing. So the Romans made lots and lots of mistakes. You, know, you, you can't look at Roman history without seeing the, the mistakes, the disasters, but they did try and learn from them. And if we can do that, then I think we're probably better off as well. Even more than the assumption that people think like us, and this goes to this whole sense of history, is the realization that gets lost sometimes that people bring different historical context to it and that that shapes how they think about events. Very much so. And it, it's, it's true in how they act at the time, but it's also how you, you look back on the past. And, I mean, it, it's one of the striking things going back to the Romans. If you look at, say, the rebellion in Judea against the Emperor Nero in AD 66, you know, we tend to think of that fairly classically. Well, it's obviously, you know, the, the Jewish people want to be independent. They don't want to be ruled by a foreign power. Well, that's partly true. But what they do right at the start of that rebellion is not so much turn on the Romans, but turn upon their neighbors, the Samaritans, the Greeks, the Gentiles, who in turn immediately form militias and start trying to kill their Jewish and their, their, their neighbors. Hatreds that long pre-exist the Roman, Romans' arrival come to the surface and are far more immediate and vivid to the people involved and their, their attitude to an empire. There's, there's almost the impression that they rather hope they could go and, go and kill their neighbors, and then the Romans would come in afterwards and just say, yep, fair enough, you know, you, we know you had to work that off, let's just get back to normal, and we'll, we'll send you some better governors from now on who keep control. So, you know, as I say, we always see things from our point of view, but it is, as you say, it's, it's not just how they're acting now, but it's how they view the past and, and other actions that are often profoundly different from our way of thinking. And things that seem unnatural to us are very natural to other people. You need to try and understand them on their own terms. Otherwise, the chances of any sort of successful relationship are going to be poor. 
Adrian Goldsworthy, his book is Pax Romana, War, Peace, and Conquest in the Roman World. Adrian, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Happy to do it. Thanks very much. Thank you so much.